0: Hello, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is...
1: James Hay. And
0: James, it's great to see you.
1: Speaking to you from uh, Spoleto, Italy, uh, on my way, however, back to uh, Champaign, Illinois, tomorrow, uh, where classes begin uh, next week.
0: So just about enough time to get over jet lag, I imagine
1: yeah well uh, astronauts like us toby uh sometimes um uh, become habituated to uh that state of being so uh <laughs> i'm 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 looking forward to it and not
0: indeed, so I wonder if we could start james by your telling us what's on your mind at the moment, apart from things like visas and tickets and boarding passes and so on.
1: Uh, it, right uh let me uh, i thought about sort of this question as the initial question that will get this interview our conversation underway toby mm-hmm. and thought that it might be because uh google uh removed uh a year ago or uh, really about this time last year Uh, a very crude website that I had engineered many, many years ago at the beginning of Google's offering uh, the possibility of constructing a personal website. And I didn't pay attention to their warnings that uh, all of this would disappear into nothing. So there may be uh, people who are listening to this podcast who are unfamiliar with Uh, sort of my research, the trajectory arc Mm -hmm. uh, of my work. So let me say something briefly about that because uh, I am increasingly in the present uh, as I'm interested in thinking about the intellectual histories of media, communication studies, uh, in particular, uh, a course that I teach at the graduate level uh, fairly regularly, um I think that these histories always have to in some ways be energetically squared with what 's going on in the present, and vice versa that uh I think it might help explain why uh to some of the listeners i'm interested in certain questions um thinking about certain events in the world uh now the way that I am. Um I began as a um uh, what at the University of Texas at Austin, where I got my doctoral degree as a quote unquote independent study or independent student. um I think that the term for that has been changed since that my interest in media studies or communication studies was sort of at the intersection also of comparative literature. Uh, which I was interested in primarily for um, its being a platform for continental European theory and philosophy in those years. That would be the 1970s. And also in cultural anthropology uh, because the University of Texas at Austin had a very interesting and strong folklore department. So my interest in, in... media, specifically film and television, uh, in the 1970s was always sort of um, part of that interdisciplinary, let's call it, or that interdisciplinarity, uh, that particular configuration. Uh, And so I was interested in film and TV, but I was, it was, in that sense, I was never Somebody who was kind of tracking along communication and media as its own, somehow its own discipline, even in the 1970s, whatever that was. Um, I was also, some might be interested in knowing as part of this history, uh, in Horace Newcomb's first uh, doctoral seminar uh, of three students uh, in which he was Uh, in some ways initiating a kind of doctoral studies of television in the late 1970s. So then I went to the University of Illinois uh, at Urbana-Champaign, and in some ways Larry Grossberg was one of the people who could make sense out of my rather erratic uh, wandering uh, kind of training as a doctoral student, Larry, who was uh, in the mid-1980s when I arrived at Illinois, um, certainly becoming uh, a kind of mediator of British cultural studies, um, where he had worked at the Center for, Co- or where he had studied at the Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies uh, in the very late 60s, early 70s, when Stuart Hall uh, was uh, the director of the program at that time. And so he was bringing graduate students that were becoming well-known in the world and was bringing Stewart to Illinois. Um, but I would also say that cultural studies in those years was also James Carey's interventions uh, at that point. And in that sense, it was a kind of interesting nexus of, of cultural studies and its relation to media and communication studies. And Larry arguing uh, in those years that we need to be careful about not sort of casually conflating the two of them together as or recognizing the conditions for which uh, media and cultural studies was one of the first homes in the United States for cultural studies. uh, it that changed over the nineties, uh, but yeah, I mentioned that in part because my interest in media and communication studies was in some ways already about kind of decentering media as the object of analysis and and I think that was something that got reinforced through cultural studies, and certainly when Megan Boris showed up in at Illinois in nineteen ninety and taught a seminar called Space and Time. Uh, And I found that to be a really sort of pivotal um, seminar that I attended in, in, in those years because it sort of moved me into an interest in the relation of media and space. It was also the early 90s intellectual Accounts of space, Henri Lefebvre's work was being translated, uh, David Harvey, Edward Soja. There were there was a kind of energy uh in uh an interest in theorizing space. And I was also looking to people like Lynn Spiegel and uh David Morley, uh, I would mention, and also James Carey's um essay, which often isn't recognized on the telegraph in the 19th century that thinks about sort of the relation of communication networks and their relation to transportation networks in the formation, and in some ways, the organization of territory of a nation state. Um, And so all of those interests began to kind of move me into uh, an interest in media space. And also it was Again, part of the question of positioning media, but also decentering media of thinking of beginning with that with that question. By the late 1990s, there was after particularly after Grossberg had left Illinois in 1994, there were a group of graduate students that I really uh, bonded with and learned a lot from and feel in some ways still a deep friendship uh, with Jack Bradditch, Jeremy Packer, uh, Jonathan Stern, Sammy King, Craig Robertson, um, that formed a kind of informal Foucault reading group that was interested in the newly translated lectures over the late 90s and into the early 2000s from the Collège de France in the 1970s. Those were just being translated um, into English, and we were reading them. And it really began to, there was an energy in the late 90s, early 2000s at Illinois, sort of amongst us through this reading group. And so, uh, my interest in governmentality studies and citizenship studies, I was also reading uh, this voice from Australia that was moving to NYU, Mr. Toby Miller, uh, who was also in some ways part of that. Tony Bennett uh, had visited the University of Illinois in the early 90s and sort of lent a kind of propulsion to. Uh, are my uh, interest uh, in that. So by the early 2000s, I was sort of merging an interest in space, uh, media space, and governmentality studies of media. And I did that in part through a project that I started uh, on Houston, Texas, which we can talk about in just a second because um, in terms of my current interest, but that was—it was, was called—it is called governing the free range city, uh, and it was about, in some ways, Houston's mattering uh, in an account of of liberal government and liberal citizens, liberal citizenship, and modernity in the United States uh, from the mid twentieth century uh, onward, uh, and so. By the early 2000s, I was also doing a project with Mark Andreevich uh, on Homeland, recently formed Homeland Security, which we called Homeland Insecurities, uh, a special issue of cultural studies. Um, I did an essay called The Invention of Airspace, Outer Space and Cyberspace, which was in some ways about. The liberal governance of uh, what's up above the earth. Uh, and that was in some ways part of Houston, the Houston Project as Space City, a, a, a term that Houston used to brand itself in the mid 20th century, and that I ran with in that project. And then I got interested in with uh, Laurie Ouellette in reality tv but the government st- governmentality and citizenship studies of television was i think i can't speak for laurie but for me it was in many respects an attempt to kind of offer an alternative perspective from either critical political economic analysis of television and media or textual analysis and i would add even audience studies as audience studies played up to that point that the question of governmentality was in some ways a way of getting at questions that I thought the critical political economic analysis of media had not gotten to, even in its account of democracy and liberalism, uh, an audience uh, focus on citizenship, uh, and so that book really was part of, an, an, I think, an intervention not only into television, but also a kind of elaboration of governmentality uh, studies. In the 2010s, I've gotten to be, uh, in some ways, I, I've increasingly been sort of shaped by science and technology studies. I have revisited... Um, cybernetic research uh, and and its rationalizations after Norbert Viner, which was particularly influential at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign in the second half of the 20th century, is that my university became uh, a center for developing hardware and software uh, in Uh, computing, artificial intelligence. You may recall that uh, at the end of Stanley Kubrick's 2001, when when Hal is being uh, eliminated, um, that he uh, sings, it sings a song uh, that it claims it was taught by a professor at the University of Illinois. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And so... Uh, that, in some ways, is what kind of moved me toward uh, an essay that I wrote in twenty, the mid 2010s called It's About Toward a Critical Refrigerator Studies, in which, in many respects, uh, I was attempting to troll uh, and, and provoke uh, my colleagues in media and communication studies for their long standing and, for me, increasingly boring. Uh, obsession with screens and what's on the screen uh, and asking in some ways, uh, why do you smile? Why do you laugh? Why do you consider refrigerators an unserious way of thinking about media and power uh, in the 2010s? Uh, And so uh, that in some ways informed uh, an essay that I wrote for a special issue on covid in which I focused on the mask uh, as a liberal object. I must admit that I've also been influenced by Chris Otter, a historian at Ohio University, uh, and even Patrick Joyce, who think in very materialist terms about the history of liberalism, of liberal objects, liberal things. And sort of that's another way of thinking about my interest in both science and technology studies and governmentality studies. And, and so more recently I've been working on a finished basically an account of the history of the personal time piece. Um not only as a history of the 2010s Fitbit. Uh, And all sorts of ways in which the human body gets datified in a kind of everyday regime, sports training or training or teaching oneself, Uh, but also because that history is tied to a history of liberal citizenship, of thinking about the personal timepiece as part of a history of liberal. Objects, the materiality of liberalism, and rather as an alternative way of thinking about liberalism uh, in relation to consciousness or ideology or a political science, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, my current interests are in part about artificial intelligence um, and. In some ways, developing historical perspectives about artificial intelligence, of thinking about how these sort of the current journalistic accounts and panics, some of it deserved it, of artificial intelligence, uh, has sort of failed to offer an account of its relation to power. And in terms of my own. The arc of my own interests uh, of citizenship, of liberalism, uh, of governmentality, but also of culture and cultural studies and what what sort of the production of forms of artificial intelligence represents for culture. What would James Carey (laughs) uh, think about um, a cultural approach to communication through uh, the recent regime, technological regime, uh, chatbot, GPT, etc., cetera, of uh, artificial uh, intelligence. Um, and I have some interests about sort of a, a, a return to questions of fascism. Uh, my first book, my dissertation was Popular Film Culture in Fascist Italy. I sometimes think about that as a one of the early, alongside Richard Dyer's work, what sort of some of the early cultural studies of cinema? Uh, again, is an attempt to kind of get outside of the formalism, the psychoanalytic approaches to cinema uh, in the in the nineteen seventies and eighties. Uh, but recently, there's been a um, an exhibition produced by the new. Uh, proto-fascist, neo-fascist government in Italy and their cultural minister, San Giuliano. And one of the f- first major um, cultural exhibitions is that they have staged in the Museum of Modern Art in Rome, a exhibition on Tolkien uh, and The Hobbit. Uh, and there's been this, an interesting Kind of debate and controversy over what the hell a um, the Museum of Modern Art is doing presenting a exhibition on token. So one of my thoughts is sort of thinking about the relation of fandom and fascism, uh, and particularly through that example, and also because I have publicly, um, in some ways argued about the ways in which in the 2000s, Henry Jenkins' account of convergence culture in particular offered a wildly utopian uh, and romantic account of liberal democracy uh, in those years that, that producers were enhancing democracy and in some ways failing to recognize sort of what was coming in the 2010s uh and um i'd be curious to know to read what he and others who sort of aligned with that view would think about uh fandom uh and as a lens for thinking about the productivity of users of um online platforms in the 21st century. So that's sort of one of my current concerns, particularly from Italy. Uh, And another one has to do with uh, a local Spoleto and sort of the cultural economy and cultural government of Spoleto, the town where I'm living in. If we have time, I'll drift into that. But Toby, I've offered you enough openings for um, the rest of our conversation, I'm hoping. So um, have at it.
0: That's great, James. Thanks. As you say, there are so many paths that we could take based on what you've said. But I wondered if I could ask you to focus a little bit on Italy.
1: Focus on, sorry, what? On Italy. On Italy.
0: And the political scene and whether you see major transformations since the period you wrote about in that fantastic book, which was about popular cinema in Italy from the emergence of...
1: 1920s and 1930s. Right, Fruit, Fruit of the Second World War. Because in those years, it was, right, cinema studies in Italy, in Europe, in the United States, whatever they had to say about... Fascism and even beyond cinema studies and kind of political science accounts of fascism um, often, I think, sort of caricatured propaganda, caricatured uh, fascism as a sort of post Frankfurt School account of mass culture, as the kind of epitome of a homogeneity of culture, Uh, and I was interested, whether I succeeded or not in that book, in, in some ways thinking about what was historically complicated and contradictory about what were often seen as escapist forms of cinema in those years, and in some ways thinking about what was complicated and contradictory to sort of fascist government of a so-called popular culture or what Gramsci referred to as a national popular culture. Uh, and so I was interested in political economy and policy in Hollywood films that dominated Italy during the fascist period uh, and in thinking about sort of the various contradictions that one could uh, analyze and examine in films from that period. I might say just as a kind of sidebar to your question, Toby, is that uh, because of, I I don't know whether it was because Lett and I decided to use an image from The Apprentice uh, on the cover of our Uh, better living through reality TV or not. But there were some journalists that contacted, I don't know about Laurie, but me uh, in the Trump campaign of 2015 2016. And then I gave a talk about Trump uh, at a number of universities. And there were frequently the assumption that Trump was, and they often, I thought about this kind of photoshopping of Trump's face onto Mussolini's face and or because there's a sort of new version of a kind of authoritarian dictatorship. And my point was always that then and now is that Mussolini was and an Italian fascism was predicated upon a relation to a particular media environment. And that was a particular stage of print media, of radio, uh, and of cinema. Uh, And one could talk about Berlusconi, to whom Trump was also often compared, as in some ways uh, a symptom of, a driver of, a kind of political formation in Italy during and in the aftermath of privatization. Uh, in the 1980s and 1990s of the demise of the national Italian territory that had been sustained by public forms of culture and communication networks and transportation networks since fascism. Uh, And uh, that Trump in some ways emerges not only from reality TV, from Twitter, uh, but there is sort of important differences particularly in relation to media economies, media cultures, media environments that I think often get overlooked with this kind of sort of conflation of Trump in relation to these figures from 20th century Italian political uh, history. Uh, but the other way of talking about this, Toby, is that um, I think that, I mean, recently um, n- there was an announcement that the right wing, the ultra right, center center right, whatever they are, however one wants to refer to their brand uh, as uh, rethinking Gramsci. Uh, and as taking Gramsci's term hegemony and suggesting that they represent a counter hegemonic impulse uh, in Italy right now. And I find that to be is an attempt to kind of co-op or to, um, in some ways, um, re-articulate <laughs> Gramsci uh, for their current project. And um, and it's a project that is not, I think, uh, simple. Uh, it is complicated. Uh, and I think that thinking about, I mean, one of the things that complicates sort of its relation to quote unquote fascism or neo-fascism uh, or to other right-wing movements such as Maloney's Uh, having visited and trying in some ways to encourage uh, the right-wing candidate in Spain uh, recently um, is that um, they are um, sorry, I lost the thread here. Um, Uh, You were
0: talking about some of the new developments associated with Georgia Maloney.
1: Yeah, um, lost it. Sorry, no, no problem.
0: I have a related question.
1: Uh,
0: earlier, you mentioned. Oh, I know
1: what. Sorry, Toby. I know what I was going to say. Let me finish it. Go no, ahead. No, which is that? Um, whatever fascism is now. I mean, when I arrived in Italy. 19 years old, 20 years old, raised horses here occasionally in the 1970s as a young man from Texas uh, and had a number of friends who were on the left who took me as their American project. If they couldn't change America, they were going to at least reshape me. I was stunned in some ways by the public services, right? The sort, of, the, the sort of public welfare in Italy that Texas was the antipode of as a <laughs> state of independence, right? And that's only, and the, Texas has only become more libertarian, which yeah. is why I was interested in Houston. But I would say that my point is simply and briefly, that even on the right, Unlike the right wing in the United States, it's difficult for the right in the in Italy to in some ways develop and argue about a platform that is about dismantling forms of public welfare. Right. And, and and in the United States, right, it is a militant libertarianism. Uh, I mean a camouflage arms-toting libertarianism, right? Standing on the steps of the Michigan um, Capitol and suggesting that we will not see this uh, masking of citizens during COVID. We will not let that stand, right? Mm-hmm. And any form of government with a capital G uh, is a threat to personal liberties and freedoms performed with the bearing of arms. Uh, And that just, I mean, first of all, there isn't that history of personal armament uh, in Italy. But second of all, uh, it it would be a much steeper climb for a right wing in Italy to argue that even though it tries, I don't mean to be disingenuous about Mm -hmm. sort of their interest maybe in doing that, but it's just a different history. Uh, And so my point about fascism in the United States versus Italy, that you need to, in some ways, take seriously and be reflexive about those the history of what it has been in Italy versus what Trump or a militant libertarianism, a term that I prefer to use to refer to uh, what's happening in the United States. So your question was?
0: I I think what you've said is very valuable, just before we get back to the question I want to ask. Pardon me, uh, James, I'm making a cup of tea. My Britishness demands that as we move past 11am, I have my second cut for the day. Um, I think what you've said is very valuable because whatever else fascism was in Japan, Germany, Italy, in the 20s, 30s and 40s, and of course in countries where it didn't come to power, that was not about decentralised government and it was not about minimal social services. If anything, it was about an expansion of social services. And- That's
1: right. I mean, Mussolini, you know, the 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 dictum that he made the trains run on time, right? Well, I mean, one another way of thinking about that is that it's through that regime that a national infrastructure, in some ways, unequal in different parts of the national territory, mm-hmm. but an infrastructure not only of trains, of rail travel, uh, but also of communication, of distribution distribution of radio, of film, uh, but also of telephones, right? Of sort of national telephone networks and so on. That sort of articulation of the national state uh, was in some ways of, of deep interest. There was a federalism in the late 20th century, the Northern League, in Italy, uh Bossi, who was the first um head of the the Northern League, which has now dropped its brand as the Northern League and is simply the League, um, the League of Gentlemen, the League of I don't know um sort of what, but the League that is that Salvini is now currently the head of that party which was about in some ways the North's not being responsible for the welfare that went to Southern Italy. And certainly Gramsci in his prison notebooks represents that kind of historical problem in the early 20th century of a left-wing politics in Italy as having in some ways to confront that kind of north south uh bifurcation uh culturally um and in many respects uh and so a po- national popular culture uh was in some ways the aim of both the communist party of gramsci and of fascism in the 1930s and 1920s and 1930s and Gramsci ended up in prison and for a while the fascists uh, were the ones claiming and defining that national popular culture. So the federalism which is always a kind of tension even into the 21st century of, of a return to provincialism which is part of Italy's past but also Sort of the the wealthier um, entrepreneurial northern part of Italy, which in some ways is always um, uncomfortable or chafing at the um, sort of giving their money toward social services for the southern part of Italy. Of course, a tourist economy. Is another way of thinking about sort of the cultural economy and political economy of Italy in the twenty first century, particularly because now the gross na- gross national product in Italy is somewhere between twelve and fifteen percent dependent on tourism, uh, and and I think that's it's it's partly what I want to write about Spoleto uh, in Umbria, this small town, and thinking about its relation to that transformation in the twenty first century. So um I may be digressing, Toby, but uh help me get back on track if I am.
0: I think what you've said is, is fascinating. And I'm wondering whether Denzel Washington's latest Robert McCall film, The Equalizer Number Three, will aid or assist or not that percentage of gross domestic products in Italy. There is a great moment when Washington says, I want to move here. I feel as though I belong uh, in a way that's quite different from how he responds to his life in the northeastern United States in the other parts of the series. Now, I wanted to ask you about two prominent figures in Italian politics, but also in the Italian imaginary for journalists and intellectuals elsewhere First of all, uh, Silvio Berlusconi, who died fairly recently. But secondly, someone who died very recently, Antonio Negri. And whether you might reflect for us on their relative significance. One, starting out life as a showboy singer on cruise ships. One, uh, starting out life as a philosopher slash communist slash guy in prison and on the run?
1: Well I don't I don't uh pretend or claim to be a an authority on Berlusconi. Um my friend Wadig Doyle at the American University in Paris, who also followed a kind of um, track of study that you Followed, I mean, from I think he was at Griffith University for uh, a while and wrote a dissertation on Berlusconi and could have, I think, more to say than I can in response to your question. But um, I think that's often how and why some journalists in the United States um, see the connection with Trump, uh, that uh, it, it is perhaps differently from as much as Mussolini may have in some ways been a poser in newsreels, uh, film newsreels, uh, and exploited the camera and those newsreels appearing in different costumes, uh, 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 processing grain uh, in a local farm without a shirt, Uh, looking like uh, one of the strongmen machiste of Italian and European silent movies as a kind of popular figure. Uh, Richard Dyer and I both have sort of commented on that. And Berlusconi, who um, developed, I mean, his connection to Rupert Murdoch is probably important in the 1980s in the sense that they were, in many respects, Rupert Murdoch was Sky and Silvio Berlusconi is having developed a series of advertising-based and ratings-based um, TV, private TV networks from the mid-1980s uh, onward. Uh, and so I think it's not only his relation to sort of as a a kind of entertainment figure, um, but also his relation to a kind of entrepreneurial citizenship and a kind of governmentality that was in some ways about uh, entrepreneurialism. Um, He also was um, decidedly uh, chummy with Putin, uh, since Putin visited his grand estate uh, on in Sardinia. Um, and I think there may be even one room of that villa that was um, named after Putin, or I don't know whether it was formally named uh, or not. Uh, but um, he did have three sort of runs. He was a perennial candidate, um, and and in some ways a serial candidate, one might say, uh, always attempting to kind of bring the campaign even into uh government uh in in Italy. There was there were there were artists, Italian artists from northern Italy who in the early twenty uh, tens uh, as Berlusconi was declaring his more recent run for uh candidacy um they did a kind of hyper realist model or statue of him uh as in a kind of sarcophagus uh in a kind of clear plexiglass as if he were buried surrounded by garlands of flowers, Uh, and he had the the buttons of his trousers and his belt were open. He had his hand slightly down uh, inside of his pants and his crotch, and he had a faint smile on his face. Uh, And I think it was a brilliant model because in some ways there was something vampiric about (laughs) About the fact that this guy will never die, he will never uh and and in some ways many of the cartoons that followed um his death uh frequently sort of played on on that uh and and even as right wing candidates uh or right wing politicians in Italy argued that there was no room for comedy there was no room for satire it was too early for that we needed to be reverent about uh his death uh and he was buried in uh, or he was he was commemorated in a church in Milan even though he was not like trump a regular church going um Believer or person, and and of course his bunga bunga parties in at his villa in Sardinia were <laughs> something else that maybe have sort of connected him to um, uh, to a, um, a a candidate uh, a president like Donald Trump.
0: And, and what about Negri, Tony Negri, and altogether but Tony Negri, I
1: mean it was I, I, with Michael Hart. There was uh, a really um, interesting obit that appeared in the New York Times uh, about Antonio Negri, and and just I think reminding me, everyone else, of just in some ways how relentless the Italian state uh, went after him uh the other night on television in italy there was i mean just this last weekend uh there was a an account of the red brigades abduction supposed abduction of aldo moro uh in the late 1970s uh and its relation to international spy agencies And the archive that they were working with was relatively new uh, and it was clearly conspiratorial. But um, on on the other hand, it was in many ways credible. It was like an hour of, of this account. And so I mentioned that because of the ways in which Negri was in some ways scapegoated, forced to leave Italy, then when he thought it was safe to come back to Italy, uh, he was uh, arrested, uh, put in prison, and it's just, in some ways, astonishing to me uh, not to conflate Gramsci's situation in him, but just how prolific uh, Negri was. Uh, In many years, not just in exile from Italy, a country that he really refused to return to, but also just from prison um, or from, I shouldn't say just, from, that much of what he wrote uh, was from prison. And Michael Hart, um, you know, I, I i don't know the granularity or details of this, uh, but uh, it it seems from what I do know that Michael Hart Uh, was in some ways that they were working together. Uh, Michael Hartnott in prison and Tony Negri writing some of that uh, trilogy uh, of Empire and the two books that followed. I mean, it's just impressive. I I think people rightly can maybe criticize um, that book as having not explained what begins to happen, a, a, a conjuncture or context by the late 2010s and into the present. But it's just as important to recognize the ways in which that book, Empire, I think, was an important or a, a, a terribly important way of thinking about uh, the sort of transition from the Clinton years into the Bush and Cheney years. Uh, and rethinking the word empire and rethinking a new form of empire and international control uh, in that period, right?
0: Wonderful. Thank you, James. We're out of time in terms of the amount that I'm allocated by the host. But I wondered if before we finish, I could ask you just to say a little bit more about the Houston project that you adumbrated very briefly earlier.
1: So uh, the Houston project began as a, uh, so I spent part of my childhood from Houston and it was in part uh, an attempt to think about what would a history of American U S modernity look like if it weren't narrated about the importance of either Los Angeles as a center, Hollywood as a center of culture New York as a center of finance or Washington DC as a center Hmm. of government, right? Hmm. What, what would be emphasized if you began from a different historical starting point, say Houston, Texas, a city that grew more rapidly than Los Angeles over the 1950s, but also with a deep uh, kind of uh, libertarianism, no city plan, et cetera, et cetera. So, one of the things that one of the, a chapter that I wrote four hundred and fifty pages is there. I would revise some of it, but the chapter that I never wrote uh, that I want to write is uh, a chapter about the relation between religion and science of thinking about outer space as both an astronautical objective, but also the heavens and the development of the mega church in Houston, Texas, and particularly from that part of the world and thinking about uh, their relation to one another. The recent floods and flooding and sinking of Houston, the ecological ruin uh, of that petrochemical um, economy that Houston represented in some ways uh, that they literally just built unfettered for miles and miles and miles on what used to be swamp land and rice fields, uh, and now in some ways the water—where does the water go? Uh, and I, that's another chapter that I want to think about. Um, and the, the Houston estate, a, a, a state Texas that I can't return to anymore uh, for many reasons. Austin, Texas, that I love uh, dearly, but it's just gotten too big, too unwieldy, and uh, the politics of of Texas, uh, the the repercussions of that militant libertarianism, uh, make it uh, as much. I'm fifth generation uh, from Texas, um, and it's a history, a genealogy that I've struggled with for much of my adult life and particularly uh now but that those would be my ways back into into the
0: project because as you know many of us can't wait for this to come out as a book yeah. i've been troubling you about it on and off for years yeah
1: I know. and in in, know- in, a, in a very sweet and uh and um and caring kind of way so um i thank you for that
0: well, I think it'll be a masterpiece. So thank you very much, James. It was really great.
1: Well, thank you. It's, it's uh, you know, as I told you, when you extended the invitation, um, I, I enjoy sitting around, in this case, the virtual table with you, <laughs> uh, brainstorming our conversations. Uh, I miss you. Uh, be well. Uh, and thank you so much for the invitation.